0: My father told me a story once of how he got his first ever visa to come to the UK. So we were all born in Pakistan and he wanted to come to the UK to try and see if this would be a good place to raise his children. And back then, so he he grew up in in a farm, like a a village, like literally like my uh, granddad owned a farm. And so he was was literally raised on a farm like this is old school Pakistan, right? This is 1980s, 1970s. And then, you know, he gets a bit older and stuff and he starts to travel around the world to try and figure out where to raise his children, which I think is really smart. A lot of people just kind of settle in their own hometowns without really realizing there's a whole world out there that it probably is wise to go experience first before you choose. Okay, this is my house. I will stay here now for 20 years. But my dad applies for a visa to come to the UK. He travels all the way to the British Embassy or the the Emigration Office or whatever it is, like some kind of you know government place he's got to go to and he's travelled hours to get there. And he, he told me the story that it would open up at 7 a.m. and it was like in the mountains. And so you would have to get there literally hours earlier and line up in this huge line outside of it at like 4am or 5am waiting in the cold and you'd slowly wait and see that you know the employees were coming in at their 7am shift and they slowly like you know get ready to like open and let people come in imagine like this government kind of place which is just soulless and you know they're just following like systems and procedures especially this is literally like 25 years ago in Pakistan so things aren't like so so um great there and my dad's waiting in line for hours in the cold. And he told me that he would then see the people who had been waiting in line in front of them. They would actually get out and be replaced by their bosses. Who would like come up in like nice cars. So essentially what happened was like rich guys, like, like guys who were quite wealthy were able to outsource their place in the line to their cooks, their um their maids, whatever, their their servants. And that's just something that always stick like stuck with me, knowing that my my dad experienced that and that. There was such a divide of like of wealth that someone, you know, some rich guy was able to like outsource. And it makes me feel very happy that, like, I've become that kind of man who can outsource, like, tasks that I don't want do to do to employees. And, yeah, he got the got the UK visa. He actually had, like, he told me he had an argument with the person in there. Like, I, I res- like I'm not like this at all. Or You know, I'm trying to be more. But, like, he, he's a very assertive man. So he told me another story of this. At the same time, he goes in and... He applied for like a, a three-year visa, something like that, so you could come to the UK and they, they literally stamped him and just gave his passport back. He had a look at it and it said six-month visa. And really imagine this scenario. You're in some government building. You've just stood up. You've got your passport stamped. Someone else has just sat down on the same seat. You know, some other guy waiting for his visa. He's just sat down on your seat. You've, you've started to walk away. I think most people, especially my generation, we would have just saw the six-month visa and just be like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what I've got now. And so my dad told me like, no, he literally like he went back. Told him, like, you know, whatever, apologize to the guy who just sat down and said, no, no, like, I asked for a three, v- three year visa. That's the form I gave you. It was for three years. The guy behind the desk is like, no, it doesn't matter. Like, whatever. And usually you, you'd kind of give, you know, you'd give way to someone who's in that authority figure. But my dad challenged it, ended up getting loud, ended up saying, like, you know, he wants to speak to the manager and stuff. And eventually, like, you know, other people coming in, my dad's like, no, pushing his point. No, it needs to be three years because it's for business, it's for this, it's for this. No, no, I came for three years. I filled out the three year form, so make it three years. And just something like hearing this story of him telling me that just impressed me because I think young men of my generation, it's like we don't really have that level of assertiveness. We would have just walked or at least I would have like just walked with our like our tail bet- between our legs of just, yeah, like, yeah, I guess it's a six month visa. Then it's not exactly what I wanted. But a lot of the times we don't even feel like we have the confidence to, to bring up something like that. Eventually with enough like chaos there, it's like, yeah, they stamped the new one. Okay. Three years. And he was then able to travel around the UK, see where, um, some like, uh, factories were. So he was working, working in like a paper mill and, and a, uh, uh, power plant kind of place as an engineer. So he's like traveling around a little bit. And so that's the first lesson that I've learned. Like even before I was born of the stories that he's told me is, is one, some level of assertiveness is good. And two, To make sure you you travel and experience different cultures and countries before you settle down because the uk is my home this is where i've grown up i was born in pakistan but we moved here when i was like two years old so this is really all i know and for the last year you probably know my story, like I've literally been moving everywhere I was here, then I went to Thailand, then I came back then I went to I like went to Scotland for a long time, then I moved to London, then I moved to Dubai, then I went to Thailand again for a month and then I came back and it's like okay, i've I've not experienced the entire world, but I've experienced like you know some some movements some you know different countries and areas and I'm glad that I've had that experience because it's made me value actually have the choice of like yeah this here my hometown this is actually where I genuinely want to be this is where I prosper and so it's like that is actually like confirmed now and I think this is important this isn't you know for me to say like oh I yeah, just go traveling bro <laughs> like it's just valuable to get this a little bit of this life experience because you never know what's going to happen in your country and it might be valuable to have some kind of other home base that you could set up the reason why this is way more significant than it actually seems, because it's not just about traveling, it's it's that. If my dad didn't do this, we'd still be in Pakistan. If he didn't go and fight for that visa, then move us here. like we, I literally would have just grown up in Pakistan. And I guarantee you that I would not have made this channel. I guarantee you that this would not be my life. And actually, when I was in Dubai, just a few months ago I'm there walking around like successful youtuber I have a $10,000 watch on my wrist I'm wearing like a $500 shirt and I don't know if you've ever been to Dubai but there's a very like there's a very clear class of people there and the Indians and the Pakistanis like they're like the full-on like workers almost essentially slaves you'll see them come in on their buses. They're getting paid pretty much nothing. They they come in on like, you know, particular buses and then they're just working in like the construction sites they're building, all of the beautiful, um, towers and buildings there. And it's like this well-known thing. Okay. They don't really get treated well. They don't get paid well. There's a lot of like horrible abuse that, that goes on to these workers that come from Pakistan and India. Right. And every single day with me and my friend Sam, we'd walk past, like, you know, construction sites where there was a lot, like, of these workers who was just, like, stood outside. And oftentimes, like, I felt somewhat uncomfortable. And I I couldn't place, like, my my thought on it just yet. Up until just one more time, me and my friend walk past, like, a bus of these guys, like, it's it, they're finishing the day of work at, like, 7pm, they were there, like, literally broke before I woke up, like, 5am, 6am, and then just now finishing at 7, and I'm just kind of noticing that they're all kind of, like, looking at me whilst they're in the bus, and I'm thinking of how, like, how interesting it is that I'm on this pavement here, like, going shopping or whatever, like, bullshit I was doing with this fancy watch and stuff, and they're in there, And I started to really think to myself, okay, like, why, why am I here? Why are they in there? And I realized two things, two, two variables. I could have been in that bus if we stayed in Pakistan and maybe if something happened to my dad or even if it didn't like you know if he passed away or something even if he didn't as a young man in pakistan and in dubai and um, you know india or whatever but for me I would have been in pakistan imagine if like i didn't do well in school there which i probably wouldn't have imagine if i never got into entrepreneurship there which i maybe wouldn't have because i wouldn't have had like you know the reading like as good english skills as as growing up in uk there's a chance that 22 year old me, 23 year old me, would have heard of like a good work opportunity in Dubai, and decided to go for it. Like the, I don't think that's like incredibly far fetched. There the could have been a chance, and if not that, it's I would have grown up in in Pakistan, which of course isn't like you know this is still a, like a beautiful place, but it certainly it doesn't have the life quality as like the UK. And the education that I've gotten here, even though, like, you know, I wasn't ever a good student in school, it's still, I would probably say it's probably still higher than what I would have gotten in in Pakistan, especially my English skill, which is literally, like, what makes this entire, like, business run. The story of how I learned to ride a bike is actually really wholesome. So when I was in primary school in Liverpool, I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. I couldn't ride a bike. It it just never really came up, right? You know, like we moved to the UK, I'm like three, four years old. And then we get adjusted in Liverpool, going to the primary school. It never really came up that I didn't like, you know, I, I needed to ride a bike or anything. I lived next to the primary school, so I didn't need it for like commuting or anything. And it just really just like it just never came up like none of my friends used to ride them around the street or anything so you know we just like literally just play outside of our house with like playing football and stuff so it just never came up that i needed to ride a bike but i, I like i kind of knew i couldn't maybe i tried it once or something and suddenly in my school they're doing some kind of like bike safety day and they start like the teachers comes in and they're starting to like plan this thing on friday which is like okay everyone brings in their own bikes everyone gets given helmet and then we learn like how to ride a bike safely and everything right and so the the Literally, I've started to feel pressure straight away. I'm like it's just assumed that all of us can ride a bike And I know it's a I know it's like an embarrassing thing if you can't and literally all of the girls seemed like they can ride it All the boys. I'm like I genuinely felt pressured and like like so like insecure I'm like literally dying inside like she's going around the classroom asking everyone like have you got a bike that you can bring in? Have you got a bike? Have you got a bike? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just tell her, like, yeah, I just don't have a bike, so that's fine. So I say, yeah, like, she she asks, okay, put your hand up. If you don't have a bike, I put my hand up. And there's, like, two people, right? It's just me and and some other kid, right? And then she she asks the the students and, like, pretty much my friends. She says, like, oh, has anyone got, like, a second bike, like, of their brothers or something that, that Hamza and this other kid could use? And one of like my friends puts his hand up that he, okay, he's got a spare bike that he, I could use. And as soon as he did that, I went like, oh yeah, g- give it to him. Like he really wants it. So I'm like passing it, outsourcing it onto like the other kid. Just shy and everything. Don't know how to ride, right? And um, I don't know if something got organized or whatever, but it comes to the day Friday. And it's supposed to be like a whole day or whatever it was, right? And I just tell like my mom like, oh yeah, it's just a bike day and like I, I'm I'm sick anyway. <coughs> i don't know if my mom ever knew if i was taking the piss or not but like i think i got the day off off school and i think i probably would have brought it up to my dad like, oh yeah like i want a bike i want to be able to learn and stuff and um i tried to learn for a while right so we were literally in liverpool and i was trying to learn how to ride a bike there and i remember my one of my best friends, little brother was trying to teach me for like over the course of like a couple of weeks and i just couldn't get it like he was he, wasn't, maybe it wasn't that good of a teacher, but, like, he just, like, you know, it just, it wasn't working, and, you know, I was trying to learn on his bike, and it just, I couldn't get the handle of it, I couldn't get, like, just started on it, I couldn't get, like, you know, into the flow of it or anything, I couldn't get the hang of it, the balance was all wrong, you know, I could step off with my feet, of course, but then I just couldn't balance it and everything, and, um, I think I probably, I think I probably would have ended up, like, maybe learning there or something, but the, the, um, environment or, or the safety kind of changed like um so this was near our last like year of of being in liverpool and then suddenly our families like being attacked by racists like very often suddenly like i'm not allowed to play outside anymore and there's like a group or like a gang of of racist guys who were just very consistently coming around and throwing eggs at our house and one day, they threw a brick through the, the front window and also through my dad's car. Every, like, two, three days, you just heard, like, the thuds of, like, eggs clapping against the, the window. And then just, like, the Scouse accent just screaming, like, Paki, Paki, like, all this. And um, my father installed, like, the CCTV and we'd see them sometimes, like, jump over our fence. I'd, look like, look up to the window, like, try and open up the, the you know, the post box and everything, like. So, um that kind of like stalled me being able to ride a bike out in, in, in public i just kind of stayed inside after that but then eventually like um that was a, the whole thing that happened like i have just breezing past some like you know big life event that happened to my family um that happened for a good few months and i remember it being like extremely stressful for my family and you know we weren't wealthy or anything so it was it was like a difficulty to try and think of moving away and everything and Eventually, we ended up moving to Warrington to this house where we are now. I've just, yeah, I've literally just breezed past that story of like literally getting attacked by racists, but it, it got, it was very bad. It's, it's gonna be in, in full detail if you are interested. Like, my book will be released probably about six to seven months from now. And we have like pretty much a full chapter on just that part of my life where like literally just like my family's being attacked and everything. It was very like racist times and a, um, A black kid had been brutally murdered like close by as well in a racist attack Liverpool was just very racist at this time it's very different now but I tell the full story in my book but that'll come out soon so we ended up uh, escaping from that and ended up moving to Warrington where thankfully like everything was safe and everything and so my dad actually bought me a bike here and I take it outside you know, Expecting, okay, this is it, this is it. I'm gonna learn how to ride, and it's the exact same thing. I can, you know, move the pedal a little bit, but then I just wobble, I just wobble, I just wobble. I just couldn't get it. My brother's trying to help me, but my brother can ride, my sister can ride, they're trying to help me. Some of my friends from school, they try, it was just not working up until one day. Like, we all go out on our bikes and we go to this like long strip, like you know, of like pavement, right? So we can just ride like safely and everything. We go there. And my dad did something different. I think this is pretty much like the first time he actually tried to like help me to to ride. I don't know if I asked him for help to come out or not, whatever. Or maybe he didn't even know that I, I couldn't ride, but I don't think I told many people. So anyway, we're all there. My brother and sister just messing around. They're on their bikes, no problem. I'm feeling insecure. I'm literally just like pedaling, not pedaling. I'm like pushing with my feet trying to follow them. And so my dad just does something completely different to what anyone else had done to try and help me. He puts me on the bike, and he holds it still, like he holds it steady, right? And he starts to tell me, okay, pedal, like he's balancing the bike for me. So he tells me to pedal, and the bike starts, starts moving, and he starts walking along with it. And he tells me, pedal harder, and then he starts jogging with it. And he just pedal harder, pedal, like he start, he's shouting at me, and he says, like, no, look up, look up. So like, stop looking out, just look up, just look up. Pedal harder. Now, now he's literally running next to me, holding the bike, and then he just lets go. And literally like that, I can I can ride a bike now. It was that simple. Just like that, it just unlocked. And I knew how to ride a bike. I knew how to even go from the start by myself now. And the lesson is all about momentum. Through all of that time, I needed momentum. It was so hard to go from like zero to one, to go from like a stationary bike. And I was, like, the, what I was doing wrong was like, I was on a stationary bike trying to like pedal but without knowing that you to, to like, you know, be balanced on a bike, you've got to be moving forward. You can't really balance on a bike, just being st- like still, right? Maybe, it's, you know, some guy who's in like the Guinness World Book of Records or some weird balancing kid or something. They can just like sit on a bike like that. But generally, if you just sit on like a, a cycle, you are just going to topple over to one side. But when you're actually pedaling forward, you that doesn't happen. You needed momentum. I didn't realize this, and obviously, I was young then, so I didn't think, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, the the value of momentum." (laughs) But years later, thinking back about that story, you know, because learning to ride a bike, especially when your dad's helped you, such like a wholesome, like boy, even for girls, but you know, childhood experience. You need momentum, and that's how things fall into place. And you know, this this is actually a piece of advice that a a, a formal former royal marine like commando has even told me as well, like the first ever interview I did like I got into podcasting like interviews very early on in this channel, like literally two thousand and twenty or something, and I interviewed this guy who was a marine commando. And he actually told me one like this advice as well. He said, like, essentially, you need momentum. You need to take one step in front of the other, and that makes the task so much easier. Like too often, you just see the task as this big whole thing instead of thinking, okay, what's the smallest thing? Like what's the first step that we can take? With that momentum, you're able to then tackle on the rest of the the, the task. Another lesson from my father. So through all of this time, even. As a, as a teenager, 13, 14 years old. There was always something my dad would do, which made me feel really awkward and embarrassed. Any Like when we were out in public. Imagine we're out in public in like some store or something, right? And we go up to the cashier. There's something my dad would always do. And maybe your dad does it too. And he, you know what it was? He'd speak to people. You see, like, I've grown up halfway through like the social media smartphone era where like i grew up without that stuff even though i grew up with the internet it grew up you know without a smartphone i got my first phone at age like 14 15 or something so i grew up without that stuff but i think my generation still when we were teenagers we were very like socially awkward or at least i was quite shy quite reserved like you know you'd go into a shop and not have like extremely anxious thoughts or anything but you wouldn't at least i wouldn't have thought that it was like normal or or right to speak to people more than the you know expected of of, oh hi like yeah here's the stuff i want to buy okay yeah thank you here's yeah can i pay my car please like i thought you were just supposed to leave it to that but we'd go to the shop and my dad makes like a comment on something that's happening and he'd turn around, there's like a family behind us. He'd end up speaking to them. The little They've got like a little daughter who's making a noise and he'd like bend down and speak to her and stuff. And I always was so embarrassed by this. I was always, I always found it so awkward to be around. I was like, how can he just do this? That's like, doesn't he know? And then, you know, it, Took me a good few years to realize like it's just social skills like this is what a healthy human supposed to be like We're around people that are essentially part of our tribes part of our community And it's like you should essentially like in this caveman primal way Identify that the people that you're physically around are friend You should like, you know move them away from this neutral gray zone of this unambiguous person And actually see, okay, are they friend or are they foe? I was always scared to move them out there because they might be foe. And so I always just kept them in this like neutral zone. And I think this is why anxiety is so high these days, like social anxiety. You go to the gym. You put yourself in vulnerable conditions where you've got weight on you. Maybe you're training neck or something, you know, you're in a vulnerable condition. And maybe if you're not social, bro, everyone in there is like a neutral. That's literally never happened in any like species of humans or any species of animals or in humans. You don't, you don't spend time with people who are neutral. Think about like, like human tribes, right? Think about like animal tribes. There's not peep. there's not people who are neutral. You quickly identify if a person is friend or foe, every animal does this. And then suddenly in the last like 10, 20 years, we don't do this anymore. And I think this is why we feel so socially anxious. So when we would go somewhere, it's like my dad would literally, like imagine we're all on some like family trip in a park and we'd walk past another family. My dad would always say like higher to them. And he'd always end up speaking to like the little kids and like, oh, like, you know, she, oh, like the little girl's got this or something. And I always thought that, that was like so cringe, so weird. It turned out I just had shit social skills and probably you do too. I think now I think right and I'm not perfect at this whatsoever. I still need to improve my social skills when it comes to like meeting strangers But I think the weirder thing is to just walk past someone to make eye contact with someone and to you know To be physically next to someone and not saying anything to them Like imagine you get into an elevator and someone else comes in and you just like stand there awkwardly I think that's the weirder thing at the very least, bro, hold some eye contact with someone and smile and give them a nod. Like, so, like I go running every day, right? So I have like music in or something. I'm running. I've got like a hat on and everything. I'm just focused, right? I'm focused. But I found those times when I just like, you know, pretend to be ultra focused and I'm just walking like, you know, staring forward while someone's walking up towards me. I find those times that I'm, I'm way more like anxious because I'm not identifying if this person is like friend or foe. And obviously like 99.99% of the times they're friend. But then the times that I go on a run. And I make sure to hold the eye contact with the person that I'm going past and I just give like, you know, I'm, I'm like out of breath or anything. So I don't want to stop. Oh, hey, uh, how are you? Oh, good morning. Like, I don't want to talk. So I just give them like sometimes like a, like a friendly wink or like a smile or a nod or something like that. And that just literally like brings like a smile to my face. That's how connected you should be in your community and in every like instance possible. When you're physically next to people, you should physically like literally turn your head, look at, into their eyes and give them some kind of indication that you are like friend. This is this is weird to do in the modern day, but I think it's so valuable. Like, it's something that I've previously called old man vibe. It's the old man vibe. You know, old men will walk past and they've got literally like no shame to do this. They'll it, it, happily speak to you. Literally, you're you're there in your green shirt and they're like oh I used to have a green shirt just like that when I was a paratrooper in the in the 60s and just straight away he's giving you his life story it's fucking sick bro I love that like when, when I was training on the gymnastic ring so there was a phase of my life for like a six months 12 months I'm literally working out outside like a lots of people would walk past me and I'd be there like shirtless like training gymnastics like against the tree and Always almost literally 99% of the time of the people who would actually stop literally like physically stop and just watch me and then make a comment and end up getting into a conversation It was always old men in a good way like that's so like that's how you're supposed to be in your community You're supposed to like, you know, you see something a little bit abnormal You see someone doing like push-ups outside in the park You're supposed to like you obviously don't disturb him but you're supposed to be able to like look, look him in the eyes And they're like, literally, it sounds silly, but like, literally say something as simple as, oh, you're doing push-ups. Like, I know that that sounds so silly, but it's like, we're supposed to acknowledge each other's existence. And these days that's seen as like weird. And I think that's the weird thing. And I'm, you know, guilty of this too. Old man vibe, old man energy, like just increase your social skills. It, It shouldn't be too hard to be able to look at the people next to you and to be able to just say something to them. Staying stuck inside of your head, you know, in the stigma male grind set of like, you know, but there's a lot of people watching this with excuses right now. Like, oh, but I don't want to disturb anyone else. Oh, but I'm focused on my own thing, bro. I'm telling you right now, those people with those excuses live a much unhappier life, live live a way like, worse life where their mind is just in overrun. But the guy who thrusts himself out there into social situations and you know, you speak to the people you're around, you get into an elevator and you literally just say hi to the person who's come in or you at least smile at them, at least look at their eyes you'll find that you'll literally be thrown into presence, into mindfulness, and your mind will literally clear of thoughts and anxieties when you do this. And if when you don't do this, when you do, it's gonna happen, right? It happens to me loads of times, right? But when you do get into some kind of, you know, social situation when there's people around you who aren't really friends and you don't say anything to them and you go in the sigma mode of like, yeah, I'm just focused on what I'm doing, you will find that your mind will be in overdrive because it's unnatural as a human to be around other humans and not at least acknowledge their existence. That's totally... Like that's weird that is literally abnormal it's not healthy to do that that's a lesson i took away so it's something that i still want to like i still need to improve on sometimes i will walk into somewhere new and i'm like you know i just feel a bit shy or whatever and i'm not feeling like ultra confident or whatever so i'm not like looking at people i'm not going the extra mile to speak to them and those times are always worse but the time when i go in and i actually like prep myself to think yeah i'm going to go the extra mile imagine i'm walking into a store and sometimes they have like some kind of like cashier who sells cigarettes or whatever it is in like supermarkets right next to the front door. So I'll literally walk in and like smile at him, wave and just say, you're right. Hi, hello, good morning. Then you walk through the security guard. Look at the security guard and just smile and just say good morning to him and then walk. And I guarantee literally just saying one good morning to literally the security guard of like some, some supermarkets or to one of the first cashiers there or something. I guarantee just that one will make the whole like grocery trip 10 times more present than if you just go in pretending to be focused even though you've got more negative thoughts inside of you anyway we've covered quite wholesome stuff so far but to be totally honest and authentic and transparent of course there's some lessons that i've learned which aren't as as uh, feel good like nice and so the next lesson that I've learned from my father is to stay away from alcohol. Seeing your father turn into an alcoholic in front of you—it's something I didn't understand for a long time, because this was happening when pretty much in, when we moved to this house, or just before we moved to this house. Is when I first noticed. I first noticed like cans of like beer being left around the house, and my mom's like face. Always with like total disgust and you know she'd kind of like show me the can and say it's like haram. It's not, it's not something we do in our religion. And uh, I didn't understand it. I kind of you know I knew like sharab, like I knew like okay it's alcohol it's like bad or something. Like, I kind of knew it you know you see it in like cartoons or whatever. But I didn't really know like at the time. Then we moved here and I remember it got it got a lot worse. It made my dad very... Like, very angry, violent, abusive. Like, you know, I, I got disciplined when we were in the the other home in, in Liverpool. I got, you know, punished for misbehaving and fighting and stuff. And, you know, some things were a bit unfair, like, from my perspective as the kid getting hit by his father. But in this house, this that's when things genuinely changed. In this house, it genuinely went to, like, full-on child abuse. It, it fully went to, like like... Fear, violence, no safe space, sink deeper into video games because you're safe there. 6.30 p.m., the ring on the, the bell, like the home bell means that my dad's home. Quickly grab a book or grab a PSP, like, you know, I didn't have a mobile phone or anything, but a PSP and go literally lock the toilet door and sit in there for like an hour knowing that he'll come upstairs, check on me, but I'm in the toilet, so it's fine. He'll go back downstairs, he'll start drinking and hopefully he's forgotten about me. Maybe he'll check up on my room once more at 9 p.m. Already drunk, finding a reason to just be angry and aggressive. You know, my dad is is a disciplined, hard-working man. He's genuinely worked. 60 to 80 hour weeks for as long as I can remember. Like, essentially two jobs. I don't know if you, like, can grasp that. Like, a full-time job is 40 hours. My dad's literally worked, like, a little bit above that. Consistently for, for decades. And he was not able to stop drinking. I saw him defeated by this vice. I saw after some family arguments, I remember, I remember he took my, so he he beat my brother, he beat my brother up, I think, pretty sure he slapped me the same day as well, and he, um, he felt bad about it. He always had like a a weird temper, like he'd, he'd have like a violent outburst, at something to do with like you know me and my brother misbehaving me and my brother would fight each other and me and my brother were probably so violent towards each other because we were learning this at home you know your, your dad hits your brother it's like your brother's gonna hit you afterwards so me and my brother have a fight or something like that and my dad beats my brother he slaps me then we're crying i'm whimpering in a way that he hated like he always hated it when i would cry so i would like i just i don't know why like when my dad would hit me, I would cry in like a very stereotypical, like baby way, where I'd literally, <laughs> like that, I'd literally do that for hours. I couldn't help it. And I'd, I'd choke on my own, like, breath and everything. I had tears running down. I genuinely couldn't help it. Like, if he slapped me once, I'd cry for like four hours later for age 14, 15. And, you know, kids my age in, in school, like, my, my male friends in school are literally, like, dating girls, getting their dick sucked and stuff. And I'm literally here crying like a little fucking baby. And he'd hear that, and it would make him more violent because he didn't like the sound of it. So he'd he'd slap me and tell me to stop crying, and I was crying because he slapped me. So what do you think I did after the second slap? It was describing it now is like making my throat really sore, like how it used to. Like my throat would just dry up, and I'd choke on my own like throat. It was so weird, and so um, that would make him more angry. And so there was a time once that this happened, and he he really hurt my brother this time way worse and he brought then like you know to try and make things up hours later i remember him going into my brother's room and i was you know like scared hearing out is he going in there to hit him again maybe he'll come in my room to hit me again but i heard him talking kind of calmly i think in this argument my brother had mentioned the alcohol actually and um he went to my brother's room and told him to like come with him and like brought him downstairs and I kind of like silently like crept down the stairs to see what was happening. Like this was weird. And my dad had a six pack of of beers there in the kitchen. And one by one, he opened them, cracked the, the can open and then poured it down the sink. And as he was doing it, he looked at my brother and said, I will never drink again. He drank again within a few weeks and continued to do so for years and years and years, to this day. He's a very hardworking man, very disciplined man, and he's not been able to overcome this vice. There was a time when he he texted me. I had uh, moved away from my family home, and I had pretty much abandoned, like fully run away from family. I was like 21 years old, and I had blocked everyone, genuinely like blocked all of my family genuinely did not speak to my family for about a year just like i don't know if you could take that literally i did not speak to my family for a year not you know exaggerating oh yeah i spoke to them no, no no like i literally blocked all of them every number every social media thing if i got a new message from a new number i'd block it instantly they did not speak to me for a year right eventually my life was terrible without my family's influence especially without my mom like kind of you know, giving me like values and everything. And I turned into a total degenerate. I'm smoking weed all the time, playing video games, eating junk, you know, just horrible like D Gen Jeffrey life. And eventually my my girlfriend who I was living with, so this is like an ex-girlfriend we're talking about now. She gets a message on Facebook and it's my dad. And he sent like a massive paragraph and I was kind of expecting this. I didn't even know, but literally my dad sends me a message, just, you know, sends her a message that, you know, they're worried, they've never, they've not heard from me and they wanted to invite me to my brother's wedding. I was literally gone for so long, I didn't even know like my brother was like dating a a woman or anything. And literally it's just, it's it's his wedding now. Like, you know, it it really hit me, made me feel like shit, because I realized like, like time, like life moves on. I've been there like a degenerate, like, you know, not speaking to my family. Life moves on, my brother's getting married now. Invites me to like the the wedding and everything and, and my, my girlfriend shows me the, the message, but I just kind of, I don't know what to say. Like my mental health was so bad. So I just kind of like, whatever, like, but I kind of like, you know, slowly warmed up to the idea of speaking to them again. And I remember on his wedding, I just video called him instead and, you know, he was happy and stuff, but he was quite like upset that I didn't come and th- I still hadn't seen any of them for like a year straight, but I did. This was the first time I told my brother, like my mental health was really bad and, um, So around this time, I'm still living in in a different city, and I don't have my family blocked anymore. But I'm kind of speaking to them more, and I don't know what it what what stemmed the conversation. But me and my dad on WhatsApp ended up speaking about about his like drinking about alcohol, and it was just the text that he sent me where he kind of like described his life, but in in very short, like broken texts. And, and I don't know them exactly, but it was kind of, imagine just like a list of texts from your, your dad. And it was something like, I work like a laborer for all of you. For years I've worked 60 to 80 hours a week. And for what? My family don't love me. I don't sleep in the same bed as my wife. Can't sleep if I don't drink. If I drink, my health gets worse. I have a doctor's appointment next week. Might be cancer. It wasn't cancer, but yeah. Like I always saw like my dad and my mom as like these kind of... Characters without feelings. I don't know if you can relate, but you know, just they're just invincible. You know, that's just okay. Yeah, my, my dad, you know, like I wake up, yeah, my dad's gone. You never, I never thought deeply, like, I, I wasn't conscious till I was about 22 years old. Genuinely, I was like, I've been AFK for most of my life, I've just been like bra- brain dead for most of my life. So just kind of like, you know, it's just kind of normal that, yep, I wake up, my dad's gone to work, and he comes home at like 6.30, and then, you know, some other days he's maybe working more, or he works weekends, it's just, that's just, you know, what what it's always been, I've just never really saw it any other way, but like, seeing that kind of message, and and especially at the time that I was working like for the first time in my life, you know, I'd graduated from university. It was time to like get out into the real world and work some jobs. And I hated working like shitty full-time jobs. I realized how draining they were. So to hear my dad talk about like, you know, working as like a problem. He's been working long hours. And, and you know, I, I saw the jobs that he had worked and they're, they're not like nice ones. It really hit me even more. And I remember around this time, he he really did tell me, of like the dangers of alcohol like never get into drinking and so maybe I'm 21 years old at the time right years for the few years before this point I had been drinking in, in terms of like partying so I'd party very often I would go to like clubs and, and uh, student you know university parties and everything and drink a lot of alcohol there there was a time when I was drinking more than half a liter of vodka per per night out which was a, it's a lot. Like you buy a liter bottle for a lot of people that'll last them a while for some like degenerates, like me and my friend, it was just me and my friend and would finish it before we'd go out to drink. British drinking culture is very bad. It's like you drink before, I know this sounds silly, but you drink before you go out to drink. So you buy a bottle of vodka at the shop, you bring it back, you finish a whole bottle with your friend and then you go out for drinks afterwards. This is why people in this country are very, like, like, you know, that's a big generalization. But in terms of the nightlife here, it's, like, very sloppy, very messy. You'll you'll go on a night out in some places. There's literally, like, a 40-year-old man passed out on the floor. There's women who are, like, falling over. They've got no underwear on. Their their shoes just falling off. They're very sloppy. People just just drink a lot here. And, you know, I, I was one of them, but I was the one who was, like, throwing up and stuff, so... You know I mean, I, I was either genuinely like, actually, I'm not going to say degenerate shit, but um, yeah, I won't say degenerate shit. But yeah, like I, I was the degenerate, right? I was drinking out a lot for a good few years. About the time that he messaged me, I was just no longer into it because I just didn't party anymore. I had mental health problems and I was just a weed smoker instead. So it just didn't really do much for me. But seeing what it did to my father and seeing that, that he couldn't quit, even though he genuinely really wanted to. That was always quite interesting to see because I've, I've seen him work relentlessly. He, he plays cricket. He's very, very good at cricket. I think he's become the, the team captain of his club now. And he's, he was like constantly getting um, uh, in cricket. What's the thing? Like trophies or whatever for like he's a bowler. And he's very good at that, right? So he's, he's disciplined, he's skilled, he's sports, you know, everything. And he just never has been able to quit. It's such a strong addiction which is absolutely like relentless. Yeah. And so him saying this to me gave me this this life lesson that Alcohol is something that you should absolutely never abuse. If you're ever going to abuse it, make it when you're like 18 years old and do it for like a year or something. And even that, it's not even good advice for me to give you. It's just like, that's what I did at 18 to around 20 years old. I just went out two, three times a week and I partied. It's not even good to do that, honestly. Maybe it's like, you know, maybe you really want to go see what a party's like and stuff. Okay, fine. You can try a little sip if you want, fine. But it's like, even then the value gained isn't that much. The value of never having tasted a sip of alcohol all in your life is more than every party put together, honestly. The real degenerates will tell you just how worthless degeneracy actually is. And so from this moment, age 21, it's not that I have like a horrible view of alcohol or anything. It's just that like I can't. I just have the self-image of someone who could never be an alcoholic. It just could never. Even if, if times of stress, even you know, I've had big times of stress, never gotten into it. Never. Just. It's not that I've you know I've not never drank or anything. It's like. Like for example, there was there was a party in Dubai a few months ago, and I, I drank quite a lot for that. And it, the, you know, my friends were saying like, "Oh, this is the first time I've ever seen you drunk." It's like extremely rarely. I'm I'm talking genuinely less than one time per year. Like genuinely, like like once every few years will I be drunk? Since I've I've moved back home here since uh, 2020, so just under three years ago, I think I've been drunk like three times. I'd say that's a pretty good amount. I think that's like a a healthy relationship with it. So you might want to go even more strict, but that's what uh, has really worked for me. So then around the same time, I'm pretty sure in the same list of messages, he mentioned something that became another lesson for me, but I had actually been doing this one quite well. And it was about debt. My father told me to never get into debt. I remember one day we were in his car, he was dropping me off and he, I kind of knew it, but he was kind of explaining what debt was like in terms of having to, like, you know, live the lifestyle to pay it off. And he said... It's very tricky because once you have it and you need to pay a certain amount per month, it means you need to work a certain amount per month, which then means that you don't have like the time, the energy and the mental capacity to set up something better for the long-term. You become stuck just working for the short-term. And it's a very vicious cycle. You know, the way that I was able to build this business and to have such high leverage and to be able to make so much money is because I was able to sacrifice the short-term for the long-term gain. But with debt, when you have a monthly bill of hundreds of dollars, hundreds or a thousand dollars, you know, with with your mortgage, and everyone my age seems to have a car in debt. People don't realize it; it's just like a normal thing to get your car on finance. It's just that's completely normal, and it's blown my mind that like everyone seems to do that my age, and they all proudly like I've I've had f- like friends proudly show me their cars. Like yeah, this is my car, and it's on finance. They're like, yeah, it's only like two hundred and fifty quid a month. But it's one, it's not your car, and two, like you're in debt for it. And maybe it works, you know, I've not looked into the logistics, maybe it works out, maybe it's a 0% APR loan. And so the, the lending company gets absolutely nothing by giving it to you on finance. Maybe it's a 0% loan, but it's probably not. You're probably paying extra, it's like poor person tax. You get a, you get a car on debt because you can't afford to buy the car outright, which you might think, oh, but who's gonna buy the car outright, it, it'd be too expensive. No, 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 it'd be too expensive if you got a car or a home or whatever it is that you didn't deserve. Young, like kids these days, like 18, 25 year old guys these days are getting cars that they don't deserve. And they can't afford that car and that's why they need to break it down into like monthly payments or something why not just buy the car that you actually deserve and if you can't you know if if a car a decent car is what like five grand or something and you don't have five thousand pounds in your bank account maybe maybe don't buy one then maybe wait or maybe buy a car that you actually are on the level of maybe you've got 700 pounds and you can get an absolute piece of shit car well maybe that's the one that you deserve to buy and this this hurts a lot of guys feelings and there's a lot of guys who are tuning out now because you know they're feeling a level of being targeted. And if you're feeling that right now just know that I say this like with love because this this is this is like it I'm not against you here. I'm against the system and you should be too of this pressure that we have that like yo yeah like we've got to get this car that symbolizes our status and our level because if if we don't and we get the car that we can actually afford to buy without putting ourselves in debt, we're going to feel worse. Why would we feel worse? Because we'll symbolize to everyone where our real level of status is, where our real, like, ego is. And so that's why we put ourselves into debt today and we sacrifice some some long-term just so we can benefit in the short term and, and essentially just attract people right now. I'm 25 years old. I don't have a car. If I absolutely need one, bro, I'm, I'm going to get one that, like... I, isn't incredibly fancy, honestly. And trust me, like I could, I could genuinely buy. Like I'm pretty sure I could afford a supercar, honestly. Like and not on debt. Genuinely, I could. I've got 80k. Like right now, I could go. I could go spend it right now. And think about how much, how cool I'd be if I drive around. And think about like all the people who would recognize me from. Bro, who gives a fuck? I've realized at least with these things. That comes from a lack of of something inside of you. This need for this external validation, it it will drive you to the ground. It absolutely will. And now it is normal to have that. It is normal to be externally validated by the people in your tribe but make sure you don't just sacrifice your long-term growth for it. So for example, like I, I'm very externally motivated for my physique, right? When I was 17 years old, I thought to myself, if I build like a really lean, muscular, athletic physique, people will respect me, girls will be attracted to me. That's all external and people say that's shallow, but the thing is, it actually was really good for me. It, like, it just meant that I, it got me in the gym. It got me eating cleaner. It was, it was literally just a win-win. It got me literally eating cleaner, but also got me the respect of guys and also got me the attraction of girls. And, you know, it got me like physically fit and everything, got me on a really beautiful journey where I learned about discipline. It was a win-win everywhere. There was no debt that I went into for that. And I still got to get like the, the validation from other people from it but doing it with something that genuinely means that your long-term life is going to be sacrificed because now you've got a car that you shouldn't be able to afford and you've got to pay $500 a month, whatever the debt's going to be in. And some people take out like like short-term loans. So he's, my dad said this to me, whilst that, you know, my girlfriend, like at, at the time, she's my ex, right? I'm living with her and, and she she and, and her family, they were very bad with money. She was in like weird levels of debt. So the girl that I was dating, like I had never considered this before, right? I, I, it's just so weird, right? She would keep mentioning like these random websites that, oh, you know, I saw this this table on there and there, right? And she just like essentially, her and her mum would like go on these websites where they'd just give you credit for like you know, like, on credit for, like, any purchase that you wanted. And it'll just stack up racks and racks of random debt, of, like, consumer debt, of this, like, you know, like, on a random website, like, very.com or some bullshit. And it's, like, 30% APR. You know, she's not... She wasn't the type of girl to, like, read the, the terms and conditions. She just, like, heard, like, oh, yeah, you can just get it for free right now. And she was literally in, like, debt debt next to me, right? And I always found that weird, and it just it never occurred to me because it's just, like, if I don't have, like... Is this is this weird to say bro if I don't have the money for something in my bank account then I I can't buy it I've just never considered anything else Even with property like I was saying it to my sister like even the idea of a mortgage felt weird to me. I was like Saying it to her as well. So yes I'll probably have to save up like 250k then for the first like rental property that we get for investments She looks at me weird. It's like now you just put like a 10 to 20 percent down payment. I'm like, what does that mean? So like, you only need 50K. I'm like, but how? It's like, because of a mortgage. I'm like, you know, he just hit me. I was like, oh yeah. I was like, but why would I even do that? It's like, I'll just wait. Like, I'll just wait till I can actually afford the thing. Like, why, why, why would you set up your future self to pay for you today? So my father gave me this lesson, never get into debt because he had got into debt for our family. And that meant that he needed to work very long, like hours and jobs that he didn't like to be able to pay, like, the monthly, like, bills of, of being, like, a sole earner for the family. There's one final lesson. And it actually stemmed, like, a while before this. It was still when we were in this house, and I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And I remember I was in the car with my dad. And he had very recently, maybe the same day or the day before, like hit me, like actually, like really hurt me. And I don't know, I just had the confidence to really ask him, like, why do you hit us? And I saw the shame on his face. And he said, it's just what he knows. It's what his dad did to him. My grandfather's passed away now. His his father disciplined him, disciplined him in this way, and then my my father disciplined me in this way. When he said this, honestly, I thought it was bullshit. I thought that was a, that was a horrible an- answer. I, I didn't think that was a good answer at all. I didn't believe it or anything. I thought like no, but you're like you know my pe- I didn't argue with him, but my perception was I like, know, but like you know you're you're like you can choose not to. You're you're a grown man. You don't have to. And then I learned more and more about. <laughs> psychology and trauma and i realized that actually his answer was as good you as you could possibly have given it for me to explain this i might need to go on like a bit of a rant like not a rant but a bit of like a story time about an experience that i've had and it's probably gonna turn off most people watching this because most people won't really ever understand what I'm about to talk about here. Because it's related to psychedelics. I've mentioned psychedelics on a previous video. And there were so many comments of people like, Oh, I'm just doing drugs. Oh, like, but you're supposed to be on self-improvement, bro. I'm not going to get into the argument. If you think psychedelics are drugs, then okay, you can do. But psychedelics, it comes from the earth. It, it, you can get it in like, like literally mushrooms that grow from the ground. In particular ways, I don't know how it really works, but there's particular kind of mushrooms that grow from the ground that just seem to have some weird effect on your brain that kind of opens up your level of like understanding and thinking. I'm not some like weird like addict or you know anything like that. Like th- this was literally the first time I'd ever taken them, maybe about one and a half years ago or something, and. um I'll tell you the full story if you're interested. Uh, if, you're, if you're not, if you don't want to hear this, then you can absolutely just click away. But I think this really did change the direction of my life. So I think if you can relate to me, it might be interesting. And, and you don't have to like take psychedelics. I'm not recommending you to do that. If anything, you get to watch and like learn my lesson from them for free and you don't even have to take them, right? And I will just say, like, I've taken psychedelics when I've been 100% completely ready to do so. And that's extremely important. I've been, I've always done it very safely. I know it's something not to be messed with. What happened was the first time I ever took magic mushrooms and the psychedelic effect, right? The first time I take them, you eat them and it's, you know, it tastes all weird and stuff. And I just kind of like laid back. And as literally the moment, like they didn't even hit yet. And the moment that, I had, like, ingested this, like, substance. From that moment on, I've been connected to our caveman ancestors. I know that this sounds silly, but, like, you've heard, like, you've probably heard me, like, mention it as, like, an analogy or, like, you know, like... I often do speak about, like, the primal things, the caveman things, don't I? And I I don't say that for, like, short. It's just how, like, my brain and, and my thinking works now since that point. It's like I can see everything in like the primal, natural caveman way. And the moment that I took it for the first time, I genuinely like, I felt like a caveman who had just accidentally eaten it and didn't really know what was like kind of going on, even though I kind of did, you know, I still had my level of consciousness. And that, you know, it was almost like a surprise. It was almost like I felt like I was a caveman who who went to eat whatever meal it was but then ended up just adding the mushrooms not really knowing and you know the the thought of it really came up because these this like substance has been on the earth like for as long as like plants have it's, it literally comes from like mushrooms from the ground certain mushrooms just have this like psychedelic effect right and that just really hit me it's like some of our caveman ancestors genuinely had this just by accident right And like, I'm almost like amazed and like, you know, all the visuals come in and it's like almost like the walls, like kind of sliding, almost slowly melting. And the deep thoughts start to hit me and it's about trauma. And because my mind was already based on like this caveman kind of thinking, I saw the first ever saber tooth tiger attack. I I felt the fear, I saw the terror of the cave woman who saw it who who was watching like the tiger rip apart her her caveman. I saw like the first human trauma like form like the, the terror in this like cave woman's face for the first ever like tiger attack on a human And she's witnessing like the man who impregnated her, who she had a baby with, like this cave woman being mauled to death. And, you know, while she's running away and I saw it all in her face while she's got her baby. And I saw her then look after her baby and the way that she was looking at it, The subtle expressions that she was making of anxiety, of terror, you know, even at a safe point days later or whatever, even as like the child's growing up and this child is always seeing its mother in this like anxious expression. But when there's like a twig that snaps, she's looking around, her heartbeat's always higher, her like fight or flight's always a little bit triggered compared to like, you know, a peaceful state. She formed this like trauma from seeing, you know, what had happened, like this saber tooth tiger attack. And this trauma was then passed on to her child because her child imitated her and like would, had felt the same pain as her. And then I saw that connect with every single generation of, of the homo sapien to us, but not just that tra- not just that trauma, not just that instance, but with every instance that's happened All of the, the natural disasters, the, the Spanish flu, the black plague, the great depression, the, the wars. Imagine tens of thousands of years of like, of you know, the chaotic moments that humans have lived through. And always it's it's the parents who sees it, who comprehends it, who gets a little bit scared and gets formed with the trauma. And then he looks at his child and ends up passing it to him we hold that trauma, at least this is my belief, we still hold that generational trauma from the first saber-toothed tiger attack. And so when my father told me that the reason why he hits me, the reason why he's violent against me was because his father did it to him, suddenly it clicked and I was like, of course it did. There was there was absolutely no other like explanation, of course, that's why. For years, I had thought he was like a bad person for this. And then I, I, I saw him as a little boy and thought like, you didn't have a chance. This was, of course, this was going to happen. Like it was the, the trauma and the plight of humanity against you. Of course, you were going to pass it on. Of course, you were going to grow up to be like trauma-inducing to me. And you were going to pass it on to me. And it was also at that moment where I made a vow that my entire bloodlines trauma stops with me, that it will not be passed on to my child, that I will do what it takes. I will do the, the deep introspective work, the shadow work, the mental health, the trauma work, the physiological work. I will do whatever it takes. My child will not be passed on with this trauma. For every person in my bloodline, my father, my mother, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, you know, just imagine our family tree, just huge all the way for tens of thousands of years, all of the, like the pain that's, that's passed from generation to generation. And of course, it's not all pain. It's not all misery. There's love and stuff, but there is like this underlying generational trauma that just keeps getting passed on and, and it's not like likely that people in like, you know, before me knew the psychological ways to ease trauma and everything. So it's like most of the people in my bloodline just passed it on because they never even knew that they were trauma. Like, you know, my my didn't my dad didn't know anything about psychology or anything. They just passed, they, they received it from their parents, added more because of their own life experiences and then passed it on to their child. And it just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding. And it made me think like what kind of super superhero like super power child i would have my generational trauma stops with me now you know why i take like mental health so seriously and you also know why my brain just seems to work in in these like, primal examples, these animalistic tendencies, this caveman analogies. From that day, my brain has been unlocked like that, and I I can see everything from that lens, and I I can't even think I I can explain it to you properly. That may have been, you know, people really criticise me when I spoke about psychedelics and stuff, but that may have genuinely been, like... Absolutely life-changing for my future children. And we'll leave it there. Do the hard work. Especially when you don't feel like it.